0: You're in the Waterloop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water-efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house, and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to be joined by Steve Davis. He is a Senior Ecologist and Communications Director with the Everglades Foundation. Steve, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Yeah, thank I appreciate you
0: coming on. I have uh, been fascinated by the Everglades for a long time. I unfortunately have not had the chance to venture into that wilderness. Uh, I'm hoping to change that at some point. I've been to South Florida, but I haven't been in the Everglades, but I'm just uh, riveted by this unique place. So I'm I'm glad to talk to you about it. Um, Could you describe just the Everglades and and why they're an an important and
1: unique place? Well, from just a, a landscape and, and wildlife perspective, it's a, it's a really unique subtropical wetland. Uh, it truly is a river of grass. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's, it's a very wide, shallow, flowing wetland that historically flowed from the southern rim of Lake Okeechobee all the way down to the tip of the peninsula, uh, a distance of about 100 miles. So from that standpoint, um, it, it's, it's really unique. And when you're out there and you see the vegetation and, and the animals, uh, uh, particularly wading birds and the fish and uh, Florida panthers, things like that, it's, it's just a really special place. But the more you begin to understand its connection to South Florida and South Florida's economy uh, you, you realize that it's, it's, it's an even more special place. It's South Florida's water supply. Um, we can talk more about that. It, it, um, controls the quality of water around the tip of the peninsula. And, and you might know that South Florida is really important for a boating and recreational fishing, uh, hotspot. So, uh, for those reasons, it's incredibly important. We have a lot of waterfront real estate as well. And so having this ecosystem there to provide clean fresh water to the coastal zone. Um, it, it, it helps with real estate values as well. So for a variety of reasons, it's a really special place.
0: So this, uh, what's like the square miles, I guess, you know, you, you said that it would go historically kind of that hundred miles from the South end of Lake Lake Okeechobee down. Um, what, what's like kind of the land area
1: we're talking about? Wow. Um, well, historically, uh, it, it extended all the way up to Orlando, really. The the headwaters of the ecosystem began roughly where Disney is. So you think um, that's over 200 miles then from the southern tip of the peninsula. And, and water would make its way down the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes basin into Lake Okeechobee, which is a 700 square mile freshwater lake. Um, and then it would spill over the southern rim of Lake Okeechobee into that river of grass that was roughly 50 miles wide all the way down to the coast. So you're, you're talking an area just south of the lake of, of roughly 5,000 square miles, and and we've lost about half of it, and the system is now disconnected. It's It's in Uh, managed as compartments. It's no longer a free-flowing river of grass. So what we have now in terms of area remaining are places like Everglades National Park, which is about a million and a half acres. The water conservation areas that are remnant areas of the Everglades managed by the state, which are roughly 900,000 acres. Uh, Big Cypress National Preserve just to the west uh, roughly seven hundred and twenty thousand acres. So we we've still got about three million acres, and you know I don't want that to, you know sound like it's it's not a lot. It is a lot, but it's still only about half of what we had originally, uh, going back to as early as the mid late eighteen hundreds.
0: Mm. And uh, I'm really interested. So the, you know this river of grass, but it's like a it's a swamp kind of habitat. There's marsh, there's like very low lying land areas. Like what's it, what's it like from that kind of perspective? If you could describe kind of how it varies
1: and sure. Uh, South Florida is flat and, (laughs) uh, it, it, you realize that when you're, when you're down here and we have a lot of flat States, but, um, it's pretty flat, but it's also very gently sloping from the Southern rim of the lake down to the tip of the peninsula, the drop in elevation is about two inches per mile. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so when you've got a really flat landscape with that gentle of a slope uh, and you imagine water spilling out of the southern rim of Lake Okeechobee the way it did historically, that water would just fan out across the landscape and then gradually make its way down that gentle slope all the way to uh, really where Florida Bay is and and the southern uh, tip of the peninsula. So uh, that uh, kind of topography allowed for that river grass to form, but we do have subtle variations in elevation within the Everglades that were created by pulses of flow through the river of grass that would carve out these areas that we call sloughs. Sloughs are the deeper areas of the Everglades that might be about a foot deeper than the sawgrass ridges. Uh, and then we have the the mountains of the Everglades, which are the tree islands, and they can be as much as two feet or more above the the, the bottom of the marsh. So you know, you're you're talking about a, a, a range of elevation across the Everglades of maybe six feet at any point in space, and it's that's enough to give rise to those very different habitats that you were describing. The sloughs with the water lilies and the the submerged aquatic plants, Uh, the ridges with sawgrass, which are the marshes, the tree islands that supported everything from willows up to oaks and gumbo limbos and mahoganies, which are more tropical trees that that don't like to be wet, but uh, they can persist out in the Everglades because they're on these higher elevation islands.
0: I'm also fascinated by how you get into the Everglades, as how you how you access them. It seems like you know uh, you see those those airboats, right, that have like no hull and they're just kind of skimming on top of the water. But it's like, how do you how do you get in and explore this place?
1: Well, you you think your options are limited to just maybe airboats or, um, airplanes, you know, seeing it from above, but there are a variety of locations today where you can actually get out in your car, you can get out in your bicycle, uh, shark Valley loop, which is the Northern entrance of Everglades national park has a 15 mile bike loop. You can actually get pretty deep into, into the Everglades and see those native habitats and see alligators laying across the road. And, um, but there's also hiking trails. Um, there are areas where you can get out in a canoe or a kayak and, and for some, we actually like to get out and muck around. So you can actually, there, there are trails where you can walk in waist deep water and really, uh, experience the Everglades and places like Big Cypress also. It's just fascinating
0: sounds cool. And then uh, uh, what about the, the critters that are in the Everglades? You mentioned alligators, that's like quintessential. Um, what's the other kind of wildlife that, that typifies this place?
1: It, it's really a, a unique assemblage of, of both plants and animals. And because we are at the southern tip of the Florida peninsula, and that dips down towards the, the tropical zone, Uh, We get species from the tropics, species that you find around the Caribbean, um, throughout Central America, and even some species uh, from uh, South America. So there's there's that component of the plant and animal assemblage. We also have some unique subtropical things that exist down here, and then a variety of of animals that you would see further up north. Uh, And and I think the wading bird community is probably a, a, the best example. We have things like great blue herons that you'll find um, as far north as as Canada and Ohio, where I'm from. Uh, you'll find roseate spoonbills that are more subtropical. Uh, same with wood storks uh, they they like it warm although they'll they'll migrate a little bit and then things like uh, tricolored herons and little blue herons and and then other birds that actually migrate from South America and the Caribbean so it's it's a really special place um, being down here and and because you have those tropical species and You know, one that comes to mind is the American crocodile where, you know, the Everglades is a place where you have alligators and crocodiles coexisting. Um, crocodiles don't like frost. So their Northern range is limited by, uh, frost, uh, frequency. And, um, so you only find them really as far north as maybe Naples, Florida and Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. Uh, but we're seeing evidence with climate change that they seem to be doing a little bit better. As things get warmer, looks like the crocodile might be one of the, one of the few winners.
0: <laughs> um, what about the, the uh, snakes? Like I think I've seen a lot of the news about the invasive snakes uh, is, a, is it like the African Python or what, what's, the, what's the deal with that? I know that there's been lots of stories about that.
1: Yeah, uh, that's one of our our poster children, Uh, the the Burmese python. We also have the African rock python. There are a variety of other non-native snakes, reptilians, um, that have taken hold in the Everglades. And um, some of it's through accidental release. Some of it's through intentional release. People leasing their pets out in the Everglades, thinking they're doing a good thing. And, um, so many people do this over time that these animals come into contact with one another. And, uh, because we're a relatively mild climate and get up to four to five feet of rainfall each year, uh, it's, it's ideal conditions for animals like that. And even non-native plants, we have our, our share of those. So, um, they've proliferated to the point where our, estimates for the Burmese python is that their populations uh, are in the tens of thousands. Uh, we, we don't know how many of them are out in the Everglades, and a lot of that is just limited by our uh, detection efficiency. We, we have a hard time finding them. So part of the control measures involve catching snakes, tagging them, releasing them, and then seeing where they go. And, um, so that's, that's one of the strategies, um, and there are other techniques that are being developed to try to find them with heat sensors and bloodhounds and and other, uh, strategies like that, that, um, have thus far proven rather ineffective, but, um, we're still learning. Uh, I think one of the things that we've come to grips with is that the Python's going to be around, um, we're just going to be in a management phase in in perpetuity rather than eradication.
0: Sure, sure. All right, well, back to the hydrology here because I'm also uh, very very fascinated in in Florida's hydrology because it's so unique. Um, you mentioned the the Lake Okeechobee flow there, but um, how could you describe Florida's, I guess bigger picture hydrology and how it impacts the Everglades and how, you know, changes in Florida through agriculture, through development have impacted that hydrology and therefore impacted the Everglades?
1: Sure. So I, I mentioned earlier we get four to five feet of rainfall a year. And um, you might think that's it's a large amount of rain and, and it really is. The the problem is that rain is confined to about five or six months of the year, uh, the, the bulk of it. And so that that coincides with the hurricane season that we're in right now. And we have a lot of convective activity this time of year. So um, pretty intense thunderstorms and lots of heavy rain. Um, But it's that other part of the year, especially when we get from January and it intensifies into March, April, and then even into early May, where we almost become a desert. Uh, and, and it's interesting that if you look around the globe at, at South Florida's latitude, most of the landmasses are desert. And so we, we experience that for part of the year. But it, it's just this sort of unique peninsular effect that we have and the influence of the maritime climate that brings us uh, that seasonal rainfall and, and certainly associated with the, the, the tropical systems. But so that's sort of the overarching Driver of the hydrology down here. It's warm, so we get a lot of water uh, evaporating back out to the atmosphere, and in some areas, it's it's roughly in balance. And throughout the year, um, you know, rainfall is balanced by evapotranspiration. Um, from a, a hydrological perspective, when you get out into the Everglades, though, um, it's it's mostly the the geology underneath. The marshes underneath the tree islands as limestone. We're on a, a pretty flat uh, limestone uh, old marine bed that is pockmarked with with holes that rainfall dissolved, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, so when when water flows through the Everglades, that that gentle slope uh, slows the flow enough to where water infiltrates into the ground and, and recharges that aquifer that the entire lower East coast of Florida, just a direct population of about five to six million depend on for their water supply. So that, that limestone rock is very transmissive. It recharges readily and allows us to pull that water supply out, uh, to, to meet the needs of that population. Um, so it's, it's a really fascinating system. But because that geology is so good at, at allowing water to move through it, it also means that with sea level rise and with a reduced flow of fresh water through the Everglades, it's allowed saltwater intrusion uh, to penetrate further inland uh, over time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and I guess one of the other kind of shifting into the challenges for the health of the Everglades. Uh, I know there's a lot of of nutrient pollution issues, um, you know, from agriculture, there's runoff from all the development. Could you talk about what the real kind of, you know, challenges are to the health of the Everglades, to the water quality of the Everglades?
1: Yeah, so the the challenges really, kind of touched on climate change, that's obviously one that we're beginning to learn more about, the the non-native species and the management of them and how they're impacting the ecology. Uh, The the real big ones, though, are are pertaining to exactly this, water quality and water quantity. Um, Water doesn't flow from the lake to that river of grass any longer. Now, when water comes into the lake from... Orlando and points uh, north of the lake. Uh, that water is discharged to the Caloosahatchee River on the west coast that empties where Fort Myers, Sanibel, Captiva, that area. And then it's emptied to the east coast as well, down the St. Lucie River into the Stuart, Florida area near Port St. Lucie and Jupiter Island. Um, so that water that's now dumped east and west, uh, not only is unnatural in terms of these large freshwater pulses, it's also polluted. Water in Lake Okeechobee is polluted primarily with phosphorus, secondarily with nitrogen. When that water is released, uh, it freshens those estuaries, which causes harm on both coasts, killing seagrass, impacting fisheries, impacting oyster beds. Uh, But the nutrient load also adds sort of a double whammy effect of fueling the growth of algae, toxic algae. Uh, and that also creates its own suite of impacts and, and even human health impacts, um, that, so th- there's, there's a very real impact on, on both those coasts further south in the Everglades because that water from the lake is polluted. Uh, And because the primary user of lake water is the sugar farms south of Lake Okeechobee, they're adding another layer of pollution to that water. So that the water the Everglades gets is essentially the runoff from those sugar fields. So they're getting polluted lake water plus pollution from those sugar fields. Um, And for decades, that water was released to the Everglades untreated where it fueled the growth of cattails. Cattails are a native wetland plant. Many people think when they see cattails, it's a good thing. And um, there are areas of the Everglades where they exist in a natural um, uh, abundance. But what happens in the Everglades, because it was such a natural rainfall-driven ecosystem, it's very sensitive to nutrient pollution, particularly phosphorus. So when phosphorus levels are elevated above really not far above what you find in rainfall, you start to see changes in the plant communities. And what happens is sawgrass is overrun with cattail. And so areas of the Everglades that have been polluted for decades with that agricultural runoff are now just massive stands of cattail, impenetrable stands that are unavailable as wading bird and alligator habitat Uh, And and really, we don't know if those will ever revert back to their natural state. So what the state of Florida has done in response to this, and there's been some litigation that really was the the motivating factor, is built uh, roughly 60,000 acres of man-made treatment wetlands to clean that water running off those agricultural lands, to remove, to strip out the phosphorus so that the water going into the Everglades can once again be clean, not have any further impact, and allow that water to move south. And and we're doing pretty good with that. Um, But that is is a bit of a constraint to moving water from Lake Okeechobee to the south. So as we restore the Everglades, which is involving basically moving water from the lake to the south, uh, not only do we want to enhance our storage capacity to, to increase the volume of flow to the south, but we also need to increase our treatment capacity so that as we move more water south, we have the filtration to clean it and move it uh, where we want it to go.
0: So is
1: that really the focus of the restoration
0: effort now is is providing water flowing water, actually dealing with that water quantity issue, but then also dealing with the water quality issue, trying to, trying to reduce the phosphorus, especially going into the Everglades.
1: That's right. Um, Everglades restoration is largely about, uh, it's a, it's a massive water storage project that also includes treatment Mm. and, As you redirect that water back to the south, I mentioned earlier that these water conservation areas are compartments. They were designed as really uh, a series of of dams and lakes to impound the water to ensure water supply for the Lower East Coast. But that came at the expense of of ecological uh, or with ecological harm to Everglades National Park. Because it only gets the surplus water from the water conservation areas. So that's right. Everglades restoration, it's about building reservoirs, ensuring the sufficient treatment capacity to clean that water, and then removing strategically levees and and backfilling of canals uh, so that that water can flow in a more natural way back to the park and ultimately down uh, to to Florida Bay.
0: Another thing that's always interested me about the Everglades is it seems like there's a lot of different entities involved in uh, in the restoration effort in that area having a stake in it having a say in it um, you know what's that like how how does that how does that impact the efforts and well, and, and is my perception correct that there's a, a lot of different you know
1: entities involved here if if you looked at a you know, a, a map of the Everglades and just tried to understand the infrastructure. That that is in itself is is challenging. When you overlay that with jurisdictional boundaries of local county governments, uh, state, federal jurisdiction over some of these lands, and then uh, some of the the tribal entities, the Miccosukee Tribe of Indians, the Seminole Tribe of Florida, uh, they. Uh, also have a stake in the management and restoration of this ecosystem. And they're all at the at the table. Um, the, the, the restoration community involves representation from, from each of those layers of, of government and and nations, really. Um, so it, it in a sense it complicates things, but we've been at this long enough to where we have a, a pretty good understanding of what our the the primary objectives, where we're in alignment with one another, and how we can move forward uh, as a community. And um, I've got colleagues that work in coastal Louisiana restoration, and they have regularly acknowledged that we're kind of the model for large scale ecosystem restoration of this type involving a variety of of stakeholder and, and government entities.
0: Yeah, I I used to work on Chesapeake Bay restoration, um, which I think is another kind of uh, example of multi-stakeholder, local, federal, state, and all that. Um, But I know that, uh, you know, also working at EPA, I've just seen so much attention and, and resources I guess put toward the Everglades which is a, a good thing um, I wanted to ask about success stories I like to not just be all doom and gloom right um, and so what are some of the what are some of the good things that have happened and, and are happening I think there's been some some things even recently that have been been good accomplishments
1: well absolutely and so I have to go back to um, as a reference point 2000. When the comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan was signed by Bill Clinton, it was one of his last acts as president uh, in December of that year. Uh, That was what sort of initiated this state federal partnership called Everglades Restoration. And what, you know, the, the federal government was engaged because the Army Corps of Engineers built this flood control infrastructure that we have in South Florida that is what really led to a lot of the ecological harm that we've seen over the years, and more recently, economic harm. Um, And it took us a while to get started. So that plan was passed in 2000. State feds were on board, but there were more than 60 projects in that plan, and a lot of political wrangling over what to do first, and, and what lands are needed, and what willing sellers are, are willing to you know, sell their land so that some of these key storage features could be built. Um, and what happened early on was that the uh, easier lifts politically were the projects that were initiated. Um, they're not unimportant, some of them like the Picayune Strand Restoration Project in Collier County just east of Naples 55,000 acres of habitat restoration, um, panther habitat, bald eagle habitat. This is a a great project that's nearing completion, showing improvements in in the habitat quality, big benefits there. Um, So we are seeing that these projects work and the Kissimmee River Restoration Project, which predated the Everglades restoration plan is also yielding big benefits. So we're seeing positive signs of large-scale restoration down here. In fact, um, I- improvements beyond that which we expected. Uh, the, the real sort of uh, key project that we're, we're most excited about, actually two, one is just breaking ground, the other is nearing completion. Uh, the one that's nearing completion is the bridging of Tamiami Trail. So that is the road that was constructed from Tampa to Miami, Tamiami, in the 1920s, uh, there's an east-west stretch that basically cut across that river of grass from Miami to Naples. And that was in the late 20s. That was the first dam across the river of grass. Um, Here we are nearly 100 years later, we have 3.3 miles of bridge across that stretch of road. And the, the Park Service working with the state's gonna raise the rest of the road install some very large concrete culverts so that we can really move restoration levels of flow into the park. And we're already seeing benefits from that. So that's a project that's really exciting. Uh, Took a long time to get started. Uh, We're now finished with the bridging aspect. So that's a very positive story and has involved both the state and the federal government. That was Uh, a a great success story. More recently, we've seen the groundbreaking uh, by the state of the treatment marsh that will be associated with the big reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee. This we call the Everglades Reservoir. Um, That storage combined with the treatment the state's building will allow us to move massive quantities of water from the lake uh, where we can store it clean it and put it back into the ecosystem flow it south under those bridges of Tamiami trail get it down into the park so really we're seeing the first major step in restoration take place right now so that's that's really positive story something we're excited about
0: yeah, I think I saw uh, some news about one of those stories, maybe the the first one, and that's where I, I saw the Everglades Foundation and saw saw your name and some story, so that's how I, I tracked it down. That's that's awesome. So that's getting the water quantity going and then the marsh is dealing with the water quality. So it's a, that's right. It's amazing how if you just kinda give nature a break or let it do its thing, how how quickly it can kind of start you know
1: recovering, if you will. We see, that, we see that resilience, even in the current degraded state. And it, it, it's, it's coincided most recently with um, a, a big rain year that we had in 2017, partly with Hurricane Irma. But um, we, we had just the right amount of rain that made the Everglades sort of mimic what the natural system was like. And we had a record uh, nesting season for wading birds. We also had record uh, off the charts fisheries production near the coast. So those are signs of of hope, really, that if we can get this system restored, we can really see the benefits that we thought we would.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to ask you about is something you've mentioned a couple times, and that's climate change, um, which is kind of you know providing a lot of challenges, uh, and you know especially in a place like the Everglades that's at sea level basically, right? Um, what what you mentioned saltwater intrusion already, but as you look out, you know, decades in the future, what's the what's the forecast for the Everglades, and you know, what can the kind of be done about that?
1: Well, um, I'll, I'll start with your second question first. What can be done about it is um, really limited, um, and and flow restoration is our biggest weapon uh, in in combating uh what really has been unchecked impacts of sea level rise around the Everglades. Uh if you think about this flat, low-lying landscape, um because we've reduced flow into Everglades National Park, uh and again going back to that two inches per mile slope on average, without freshwater flow in the park, that is just allowing seawater to penetrate ever further into the air uh, into Everglades National Park uh, you know on that scale where you're talking about miles of marsh uh, being impacted uh, so restoring freshwater flow that's our best sort of weapon at combating the impacts of, of sea level rise and and protecting those habitats and allowing really for more natural transitions to take place because what we're finding is that as some of these, Transitional sawgrass marshes are being exposed to salt water and then periodically drying out because there's not enough fresh water coming in from the north. Uh, those marshes are undergoing what we've called peat collapse, uh, where the organic muck soils that those systems have built up really over centuries, uh, as they're exposed to salt, the plants die back, the soils rapidly break down and you're left with this pockmarked landscape of these open water ponds that really are are now too deep for mangroves to become established. So the thinking is that mangroves would march landward with sea level rise. And we see that in some areas, especially along uh, channels um, and in some areas where the soil has been stable. Uh, But in these back marsh areas, as the saltwater gets there, and especially as the saltwater gets there before the mangrove seedlings can can establish, uh, these areas are collapsing. So to your question, what's the Everglades going to look like? Without freshwater flow restoration, we know it's going to be a much more open uh, water system with less barriers to storm surge and and, uh, fortification. Uh, with mangrove establishment, then if we restore freshwater flow, allow those habitats to transition more naturally, and and perhaps protect those peat soils. Uh, you know, while those mangroves are becoming established.
0: Yeah, mangroves are pretty incredible uh, trees for their uh, ability to be this transition and be this buffer, and yeah, man, that's that's great. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time and all this information. Uh, it's only fueled my desire to get down there and get out in the Everglades more. Um, so I, I got to make that happen at some point. But uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, Travis, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And give me a call. We'll get you out on an airboat.
0: I love it. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Waterloo, Waterloo, Waterloo. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com.
1: You're in the (laughs) Waterloop.